the perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast. Here on CBS Sports, that's Tom Fernelli, that's Bud Elliott, I'm Chip Patterson, coming to you live at youtube.com slash cover3 and all across that 24-7 Sports Facebook network. Thanks for hanging out. If you're watching us live, go ahead and smash that like, go ahead and subscribe, and jump into the chat and join us. This is a mailbag episode. We are pulling some of these questions from the big old bag of mail, but there are no rules that say that we can't entertain one of your very good questions from the chat. So come in, hang out, uh, offer your thoughts on any of the topics we're talking about or otherwise. Uh, we have a very exciting uh, group of questions from you from the big old bag of mail. A reminder, the best way if you want to add your question to a future mailbag episode, leave us that five-star review. And in that review, go ahead and put your mailbag question. Uh, we'll throw it on in to the collection. We will, by the time we're out of here, Take a look at, as it says in the headline of the video, uh, Brian Kelly, Marcus Freeman, the recruiting trail, what Notre Dame recruiting has looked like, will look like, you know, small sample size for Freeman, but certainly a lot to uh, chew on in terms of some of the successes they've had there. The, the Georgia offense and a little bit of a hypothetical for Auburn. But we begin with uh, a, a good question here. Uh, we'll go ahead and, uh, and and jump on in. It's, there's there's multiple levels to this question, gentlemen. Um <laughs> The headline of the question is, I'm not a betting person. What is a sprinkle? We just want to real quick, just, I think we can rapid fire a couple of these. What is a sprinkle? A sprinkle is a small amount. It is not an entire unit. It is a money line sprinkle because we are looking for plus value opportunities where you can risk a little and get a big payout, right? It's a sprinkle. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Although I will yeah. say my sprinkles are full units. I, I use it more as nomenclature than anything. <laughs> <laughs> Just for the segment. Okay. Yes. So that is a, a, I'm not a betting person. What is a sprinkle? Next question that they have offered here. Why doesn't J Danny join the instant reaction show? Because <laughs> he's an old man with three children. <laughs> and, and I, I had in my notes here, he also has NFL responsibility. No, no. It's just yeah. that he's an old man with three children. That's all. <laughs> okay. Uh, what the next question, what is the connection to the dentist? I don't know. Are we allowed to explain this for on the show? Yeah. Like Martin explained yeah. who it, but, it but was. Just, dentist. You just talked about how these great numbers that we had in the month of May, we've got new listeners. We, we do new listeners. Assume, That's true. We cannot assume that everybody listening or watching this podcast always understands these deep cuts. So the dentist was, is, or was, I haven't checked up on the, their relationship, but it was Barton's dentist. And Barton would come back from these appointments with hot tips and they would inform some of his uh, analysis. They would inform some of his locks. 
and we have continued our relationship with the dentist. And so we still have dentist picks. I would say that his expertise is uh, Ole Miss, Mississippi mm-hmm. State, and sort of the SEC in general. But, you know, the, the only real change we've had to our, our relationship with the dentist is the, um, the dental drill sounder that I had got so many complaints that I had to pull it off the soundboard. <laughs> oh, I also, I mean, I think he's more than just Barton's dentist. They're, you know, friends. Like, I think they played together in high school. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. like Clark Lee and Barton. I think they're all on the same high school football team. It's all interconnected. Does that mean the dentist is Clark Lee's dentist as well? We, I, we, we, we did draw that up and wonder whether uh, Vanderbilt, uh, whether the Vanderbilt health plan was going to end up working out. Okay, so what is the connection to the dentist? Um, and then fi- finally, here we go. When Nick Saban retires, how will he do it? Will he do it like Bob Stoops? Question mark. Will he have a coach in waiting? Question mark. Or mic drop after the 10th national championship? So I wanted to spin this forward into something that wasn't just like, when do you think Nick Saban will will retire? Name the year. I think it's more interesting to look at that in terms of the recruiting calendar. Like when Nick Saban retires, it is going to create massive shakeup, obviously for college football in general, but on the recruiting trail within the Alabama football operation. Now, is he going to go Mike Krzyzewski retirement tour? Is he going to do as the list as the questioner uh, asked, do a Bob Stoops where you do, drop this thing in June and and almost like force the university's hand because you're already outside of the normal coaching carousel? So when Nick Saban retires, what do you think that ends up looking like? I hope it's not a Shashevsky retirement tour. I don't, I don't think want, I, don't, I don't want to do a year of that. Okay, <laughs> less games. You know, you don't, you, instead of having like, you know, 10 times of going to other arenas and being gifted keys to the city and all the places where you've beaten all the teams, uh, at least it would only be like five. I would bet he doesn't even announce it. I bet it would just leak out it's, at some point. Somebody would get it. That's my prediction. I don't think it's going to be like a, I don't think it's going to be a proclamation like in the middle of, you know, before the season, like this will be my last year. I don't think it'll be on the stage after winning a national title. Like this is it. I'm hanging it up. I don't think it'll be any of that. I think it'll just be a leaked story late in the season. Somebody will find out and somebody will tell somebody because, you know, it's going to be Nick Saban retiring. So as soon as people learn that, they're not going to keep their mouth shut about it. Do you think somebody will scoop it like uh, a month or two before, or do you think it'll happen like a couple days before and and somebody will leak it? I think it'll be a couple days. So yeah, like I, would, might be, I would agree. It might be like after a regular season, but before the bowl game. Sure. I, I, I could see. Yeah. I mean, I, it also depends to me on, on why it's happening or, you know, like did people retire for all different kinds of reasons. Bob Stoops wanted to go just like go everywhere, hang out. Uh, obviously he's on the record as discussing how his father passed away on the sideline. He never wanted the coach in, into his seventies. And now he wants to hawk tequila. Right. Um, <laughs> Are you retiring for health reasons because you're just tired of this stuff? Uh, I, I think a lot of how it goes down will depend on that. But I feel like Alabama is such a good job right now, uh, due in part to um, how Saban has set it up with demanding all the infrastructure and the money and whatnot, um, that you could keep this fairly small circle. Like It could be literally just Greg Byrne, Saban, and Jimmy Sexton. And Miss Sexton. Right, and Miss Ter- of course. I mean, you know, I don't know that that like if 
does Greg Byrne need to tell anybody else in the AD? I mean, probably the school president, but if, if Jimmy Sexton knows, and obviously he would know (laughs) Jimmy Sexton has a lot of clients. A lot of those clients might be eligible for that job. So don't you think somehow not direct? I'm saying somehow I feel like word will leak. So it, yeah, but do you need to tell those clients? Like those clients are going to say yes unless they have like yeah. one of very few select jobs. Like Kirby's not going to say yes to Bama, but every, almost everybody else he reps, if but they if, could get out of their contract, like do you think Jimbo would take it? No, he's got no I buyout. I don't know if he would take it after. I don't know. Maybe he would, but I don't know if Jimbo wants to be the guy that follows Saban, especially after what's happened the last couple I mean, weeks. Would you go from Texas ATM to Alabama? It probably depends on how Alabama's collective set up by that, by that point. Yeah, but I I also think like too like if even if it's not even just Sexton like if Greg Byrne knows, and he's going to have to know, like you have to start planning. If you know it's coming, you can't just sit there and be like, all right, well I'm not going to do a damn thing about it. You you are in charge of the Alabama athletic department, and Alabama's football program is the most important part of that athletic department. So, you have to start doing some sort of behind the scenes work. So, is there not going to be somebody that finds out that would leak it? I think that's that's fair. That that's yeah. I, I think it will leak. I just don't think it's going to be something that's going to leak way in advance unless he wants it out. Like like he, mm-hmm. I don't I don't think Saban wants the retirement tour. No, he just I mean maybe he maybe he does, but he from my public perception of him, he just doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who's going to want that distraction for an entire season. He's give me urban Meyer timing. And obviously like urban Meyer's retirement became an unretirement, but that was after the big 10 championship game, which then allowed the postseason uh, to become, you know, whatever sort of retirement tour that you had. Now that was also a Ryan day instant promotion, but if it leaked, I think it leaks like the week before the Iron Bowl or the the week before the SEC championship. And if it leaks, I do think that it's because of the efforts that are being made to line up Nick Saban's replacement. Uh, you know, you talk about Jimmy Sexton and the other clients that he represents and how they might be a part of that. You know, as as those clients are wrapping up their regular season and checking in with Jimmy and trying to figure out, you know, what the contract extension is going to look like, what something else is going to look like. It seems highly unlikely to me that they would not at least get the ideas like, Hey, well, why don't you don't sign anything just yet? And why, why don't we just hang out for just a little bit and, and see what happens here? I, I think that to try and change the Alabama coaching job, um, to try and change the Alabama coaching job after locking an early signing period class would lead to an exodus, right? And this is a a question that I really wanted to throw to Bud because if Nick Saban were to wait until after the college football playoff, assuming that he's in the college football playoff competing for a national championship, then he's already locked down an early signing period class. And if the splits continue like we have seen the splits with the early signing period versus the February signing period, then many of the best players, if not most of your best players in your class have already been signed. If you commit to Nick Saban in the middle of December, then Nick Saban announces his retirement in, you know, mid January, then you're going to end up hemorrhaging. uh, How does that play out? I think that that's the thing that is really intriguing to me in terms of the timing here. And then also if Nick Saban retires, like we're saying with an early December retirement, 
what does that leave the Alabama staff to do and Alabama as a program to try and lock down its class for the early signing period? Yeah, I mean, certainly I I think most kids who would want to get out, if they did want to get out, would be released. Uh, we, we've, we've seen this before. The schools almost always fight it initially, and then public pressure says, hey, release them so that they don't have to use their one-time transfer exemption. Just release them from, from their letter of intent. If you're already on campus, it's a little bit different, obviously. Uh, but I... I think the one-time transfer exemption does make this a little bit less uh, of an issue now. Um, but I mean, I just, uh, it's hard for me to imagine that they don't hit some kind of recruiting bump for one year when this goes down, unless you have the replacement totally lined up and it's somebody that Saban has endorsed. And, uh, you know, maybe in the week before he does it, tells kids, hey, right, like uh, the new guy was going to be, going to be great. Um, you know, I, I, I think, though, it would hurt recruiting for a little bit for just one year. I, there's not really an ideal time to do this, though. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, there's, there's just not, as you said. There's there's not. June. I mean, the Bob Stoops thing is the only time where it doesn't totally disrupt the um, – or what's it – I mean, this is – I, I hate going just like Total Homer here, but do you all remember when Dean Smith retired? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was in September or October. It was like right before the season started. And then Bill Guthridge ends up being the uh, being named the, the head coach to succeed him. So in that case, it would have to be somebody that is already on staff. All right, one, that, one last branch on this, and then we'll move on. But who on staff right now do you think would be the most likely candidate to succeed Nick Saban? They have to be on the staff right now? No, not, not, not necessarily, but... With the current makeup of the staff, because remember, after losing a bunch of assistants, some of the replacements he did the last go round were a bunch of like. Didn't he bring Charles Kelly back? Didn't he? Didn't he sort of get the gang back together after losing a couple assistants the last time? Yeah. Uh, so here's the staff. I'll, I'll read it off. Nick Saban, Holman Wiggins, who's the receivers coach, Pete Golding, DC, uh, Bill O'Brien, OC, uh, Coleman Hutzler, special teams, outside backers, Robert Gillespie, running backs, Charles Kelly. Assistant DC and safeties, Freddie Roach, D line, uh, T Rob, corners. Uh, Eric Walford is coaching offensive line. And then they have Joe Cox at tight end. And considering what we might or might not believe about Bill O'Brien and his relationship with Nick Saban, is Bill O'Brien the coach in waiting by Nick Saban's choice? I would say no, but I'm not informed on the issue. I just have a hunch. Keep in mind, you cannot really do an official coach in waiting nowadays like you used to. This is the Jimbo Fisher rule from FSU, as well as the Will Muschamp rule, I think it was. At uh, Texas? At, yeah, uh, when, when Muschamp was the D.C. at Texas and Fisher was the O.C. at FSU under Mac Brown and Bobby Bowden, uh, respectively. And the NCAA passed a rule that said you are not allowed to have a, a designated coach in waiting Um Otherwise, that if that if you do, that person cannot go on the road and recruit under the assistant coach rules. They are now restricted to the head coach rules of visits, which uh, are much more restrictive. So that's why you don't see official coaches in waiting. I mean, it, if you could see official coaches in waiting, it wouldn't have shocked me if Bob Stoops had named Lincoln Riley that guy uh, well in advance, assuming Oklahoma was you know on board with it, uh, which ultimately they ended up loving it until they hated it, I guess. Yeah, I, I just don't think there is a coach in waiting situation because there's too much turnover 
on that coaching staff to have one. And I also, I don't think Nick Saban's process involves, well, who's going to replace me? I don't think, I don't know that Saban cares that much about who replaces him. He's more focused on what he's got now. Mm, Good question Uh, from Richard. Do you believe an NFL guy will replace Saban since it seems like we are trending more towards pay for play and they will not have to worry about recruiting as much? If I'm an NFL know. coach, I'm not leaving. If unless I've got, unless I'm like an assistant somewhere, that I don't, I'm not a big, you know, like a head coach or an offensive coordinator or defensive coordinator. I'm not leaving for a college shop, even if it's Alabama. I think it depends on if you're going to get fired soon in the NFL or not. Like if this True. happens two years from now and Matt Rule is just hanging on, but is Matt Rule going to be somebody that you could sell to Alabama at that point? Like I mean, the fan base, did a great job in two college, two I, college stops. I agree, but, but I'm just saying for the fan base, it's like. And also, like he did great jobs at Baylor and Temple, but it wasn't in the kind of way at SEC where it was kind of you know like a develop and get old, stay old kind of approach. I don't know if that's going to fly at Alabama. I think this gets to the crux of Richard's question too: is uh, if if we go to more of a just straight pay for play model, the importance of you know recruiting uh, as opposed to like coaching and player development is going to decrease relative. Sure, absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right, let's. Uh, this next question comes from. Nate, hey, fellas, remember a a few months ago when there was a Huskers fan who asked about Caleb Williams and Dylan Gabriel and may have mentioned his sister's crush? I'm back. (laughs) Welcome back, Nate. First of all, y'all are the best in the biz. With all respects to Redacted, my backup boys in the CFB podcasting game, Bud has kicked the cover three into legit goat podcast zone. My question, you may have done this before, but greatest player in a single season not to win a Heisman. Christian McCaffrey comes to mind. Brad Banks, weirdly, comes to mind. Adrian Peterson was robbed. But again, Huskers fan, no one comes to mind more than Tommy Frazier, who was clearly jobbed by being in the greatest team to ever do it. Stats don't lie. All the best, my dudes. I'm assuming he means 1995, Tommy Frazier. I'm assuming so. Yeah. It's the greatest single season to not win a Heisman trophy. Um see, that's the thing. I I think Frazier in ninety-five, I don't know if that's the greatest single season as much as it's comparative to the guy who won. Because I mean, I I looked this up. I had in Frazier in ninety five, he threw for thirteen hundred and sixty two yards and seventeen touchdowns, which is nothing, but keep in mind Nebraska's running an option offense. And he rushed for six hundred and four yards and fourteen touchdowns, which is a total of nineteen hundred and sixty six yards and thirty one touchdowns. Eddie George won that year. He he had two hundred he had twenty three hundred and forty four total yards and twenty five touchdowns. So Frazier had six more touchdowns, George had more total yards. So if you want to argue that Frazier was more deserving of Eddie George that year, fine. I think Tommy Frazier is one of the greatest college football players of all time. I don't think he quite meets the requirement for greatest season not to win a Heisman. I feel like we did this episode last year. I'm trying to remember who we had. Oh, but... no, no, no. We did best teams not to win a national championship. Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. So the Adrian Peterson one is a pretty obvious one. Um, I remember thinking back in the day, Rex Grossman should have won the Heisman uh, for Florida. And I'm trying to remember who won it that year. And it was just... I think it was Eric Crouch. Yeah, like Eric Crouch should not have won the Heisman over, over Rex Grossman. Yeah. Eric Crouch got our, Tommy Frazier's Heisman. <laughs> yeah, our, our Nebraska guy is not going to like this. But, you know. Um, OJ, actually. 
is a legitimate Heisman snub with a ridiculous season. Uh, I mean, he should have been the the first two-time winner before Archie. Like, back in the 60s when they weren't playing 12 games and they were playing 10-game schedules, he ran for 1,543 yards, uh, 13 touchdowns, and he lost to UCLA's quarterback who threw for 1,359 yards <laughs> and eight touchdowns. <laughs> Like there was some weird stuff going on back in the day. Yeah, it's so hard to like compare the numbers over the different eras because of it. But Herschel Walker, when they wouldn't give it to a freshman back in the day, yeah, pretty Mm -hmm. good one, I think. So I don't think that it was a snub based on what happened at the time of voting, because Reggie Bush was deserving. But if the question is just greatest single season by a player who did not win a Heisman Trophy, Vince Young came to mind. Yeah, two thousand five. 3,036 yards passing, 26 touchdowns, 1,050 rushing, 12 more touchdowns. Peter Pretty Ward, good season. Back when they like just pretended to care that you got discounts at Dillard's. Mm-hmm. You know, the outrage. While we're, on, while we're on the wide receiver topic here, Larry Fitzgerald in 2003, 92 catches, 1,672 yards, 22 touchdowns in 13 games. Six years before, in 1997, a tall, skinny man in Huntington, West Virginia, playing for the Thundering Herd, caught 96 passes for 1,820 yards and 26 touchdowns in 13 games. But he never had a shot to win, although he was a a Heisman finalist that year. But that was the year with Charles Woodson won, Peyton Manning was a finalist, Randy Moss was a finalist. That was an incredible season, but he played for Marshall. So, and he had, you know, off-field issues. Um. Marshall Falk as well. Mm-hmm. Like just a, a ridiculous year. And he lost to Gino Toretta. Yeah. The Miami QB thing. No it's, offense, but like Gino Toretta threw for 3,060 yards, which is not great. 19 touchdowns, seven picks. Mm-hmm. I, I do think if they redo that one and the voting happens after the Sugar Bowl, uh, they probably, you know. Jordan in the chat has, has a really good one, by the way. And Dominican Sue. Yeah. Yeah. No, we we can definitely. See. I was thought I was thinking about being cheeky with Will Anderson, but I really meant Indomitian Sue. If we're going to talk about a de- like uh, a defensive player who was the the definition of the Heisman Trophy is most outstanding player in college football, and Sue was outstanding and yeah. did absolutely everything uh, in in that season. Twelve sacks, twenty and a half tackles for loss, and interception. And while those numbers don't really like Will Anderson's numbers last year were different or better. Will Anderson was an outside edge rusher and Domakong Sue was a defensive tackle. He was Aaron Donald in the college before Aaron Donald existed. He was being double teamed on every single snap and he blew it up. And he also had a really good season. The only reason he had any momentum in 2009 was because he was awesome in 2008 too. He didn't have the same overall numbers. He did have two pick sixes in 2008, by the way. So that's fun to think about, but yeah, no, he was a dominant like that's the most deserving I've ever thought a defensive player should be for the award. Here, uh, here's one for you. How about Chuck Muncie? What? Chuck Muncie? Isn't that my accountant? What's a I, Chuck Muncie? I think Tom. I, I got this actually from an article from Tom Fernelli. Yeah. From July sixth, twenty sixteen. Mm-hmm. Uh. So Chuck Muncie lost to Archie Griffith when Archie Griffith, uh, you know, got the, um. When, when, when Griffin got the back-to-back Heisman's, yep. Muncie actually had a better year. Tom's right. 1,852 mm-hmm. yards from scrimmage, 6.9 per touch, 15 touchdowns, and uh, it went to Griffin. So what 
Tom, what was going on Fourth of July weekend that had you writing about Chuck Muncie? Uh it was on the budget. Oh. <laughs> it was something I could write ahead of time. I mean, in yeah, July. You know, back when back when they made me write things still. Uh another one, another couple ones actually I have. 2007, Tim Tebow deserved to win the award. So this isn't like a snub thing. So. Yeah, I agree with that. But Darren McFadden that season ran for 1,830 yards, had 164 receiving, 17 total touchdowns, had 316 return yards. Like Tebow deserved the Heisman that year. But Darren McFadden was the most exciting player in the country to watch that season. He was the most entertaining. He like you you tuned into Arkansas games just to watch Darren McFadden do crazy stuff. And that was also like the origination. Remember, like when the Wildcat offense became a thing? Wild everybody was trying. Yeah. Well, that was with McFadden <laughs> in Arkansas was kind of the impetus for that. And then another player who had two outstanding seasons and was a Heisman finalist both years, Andrew Luck in 2010 and 2011. Obviously, in 2010, he finished behind Cam Newton. No argument there. Like, Cam Newton was just a phenom. And in 2011, RG3 won. And that was, you know, at the beginning of the Art Briles kind of air raid Baylor kind of thing where the numbers were eye-popping to us because we hadn't seen him a million times. I think if you played that, both players had the same exact season in 2022, Andrew Luck probably wins over RG3. Mm. Um, speaking of exciting, Mike Vick, 1999, Ron Dane was the winner. Yep. Again, like, same scenario. yards. I don't, I don't want to knock Ron Dane and his, you know, and his rushing that season, but Mike Vick was outstanding uh, in that game. And like, he didn't, Vic didn't have a great statistical profile compared to sort of what he meant. I remember Virginia Tech in that 99 season won a lot of sort of lower scoring games. Mm -hmm. Vic had some injury issues along the way, but he was the reason that the Hokies got to play for the national championship that year. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was back in the time, though. Didn't, didn't Dane have 2,000 yards that year? And that I was pretty so. much like in the yeah. late 90s. If you rushed for 2,000 yards in a season, you were winning the Heisman period. Coming up, coming up on the other side, uh, we have entered the Marcus Freeman era at Notre Dame. We'll have plenty of time to break down what we think is going to happen on the field, but we've already got some results about what's been going on on the recruiting trail. How does Brian Kelly and Marcus Freeman, how do they stack up against each other, and what does it mean for the Fighting Irish moving forward? We'll get into that and more next this episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. So this next question comes from Ryan. 
Uh, he says, welcome back, Chip. Oh, thanks. Uh, I was wondering if you guys could speak to how different Notre Dame recruiting is under Marcus Freeman so far than it was under Brian Kelly. With an ever-growing class of highly rated players, it seems as though the statement that, quote, Notre Dame can't get the best guys is now a moot point. With plenty of high praise from recruits about his pitches, I was curious if you guys knew more about the inner workings there and what the major differences are in the regimes. It'll be interesting to see if he can sustain this moving forward, but Echoes might actually be waking up for a change. So I do think they're recruiting really well. Obviously, they have the number one recruiting class in the country uh, right now. And I, I would caution people that when you're looking at recruiting rankings this early on, you need to judge you need to kind of juggle rather uh, volume with, with quality, right? So and you're saying Texas Tech won't finish second and Northwestern won't finish fifth? Correct, yeah. Okay. Northwestern with you know two-thirds of a class already sewn up and 15 of those 16 are three stars on the composite. Texas Tech, 14 out of 18, or 14 out of 20 commits are three stars and only four, four stars. I mean, Basically, like if I'm judging stuff early, I want to see more four and five stars than two and three stars. If if I expect you to have any kind of staying power, you know, at this point, like LSU has five, four stars and zero three stars right now. The Irish, however, are really kicking ass. They got a five star. They got eleven four stars. They only have one three star on the composite. They are particularly doing a really good job trying to get those defensive linemen who actually do have the grades to get in into their game. Um, coming. And that is a really tough thing sometimes, right? Like I, I anecdotally here, defensive linemen, for whatever reason, are oftentimes the guys that schools are sweating out until the last minute, whether they're going to qualify for the Irish. I, what Brian Kelly won't say this on the record. I don't blame him. I said it for him when we talked about, hey, would Brian Kelly consider going to LSU? You can get in a lot more kids to LSU than you can get in to Notre Dame. And that is not going to change under Marcus Freeman. However, their hit rate on the guys that they can get in and they target, I think, could change. He's certainly making it pretty attractive to go to Notre Dame right now. I think he's got a little more personality than Brian Kelly. Not that Brian Kelly, like for people who know Brian Kelly, they seem to think he's got quite a bit of personality. From the outside, you see the guy who is, you know, purple on the sidelines and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I do think Marcus Freeman's doing a hell of a job recruiting there. And if he can get that hit rate up, he can maybe overcome some of the challenges that uh, that everybody has had at Notre Dame. He's a 36-year-old former player who yeah. played at Ohio State. It's like the the relatability is all like you're already starting to connect right. some dots where you're going to be able to uh, get a little bit stronger. I would also note that like so Freeman didn't spend a lot of time on Brian Kelly's staff, but that first 2022 class, he played a huge role in lining those guys up so that when it came time for him to be promoted, it, it wasn't like he had to come in and establish new relationships. And I think that that's what we saw. You know, you mentioned the success in 23. The, the thing that I was taking note of going into this question was that so many of the prospects from the 2022 class and even Marcus Freeman, you know, discussing uh, on CBS Sports HQ during his time on the signing day show that, about how, like, yes, he was in a new role, but with recruiting being so much about relationships, he had already done a really good job of establishing that and helping build out that roster. I Do you think that Marcus Freeman and the Marcus Freeman era are going to, are going to be targeting players 
who are uh, dealing with NIL uh, bidding wars right now? I, um, I think NIL will be good for Notre Dame because while yes. it's not going to be as they're not going to flaunt it because that just kind of goes against the whole, I guess you can say Catholic ethos if you want. Like this is a school with a lot of, with a wealthy alumni base that is very passionate about its football program and wants its football program to be competing. So I, I think that with Freeman there, who's just an excellent recruiter from what we've seen already, add in the NIL factor. I think Notre Dame's going to do pretty well on the trail. Yes. I don't know if they'll get into like bidding wars where for like, you know, that are publicized, but, They'll be in bidding wars. Yes, <laughs> they'll they'll find I, ways. I okay. Uh, yeah, I, I go ahead. Yeah, I, I right. Like, I don't think you're going to be like Texas ATM levels, but I mm-hmm. think that they will definitely be involved with some kids who we hear are, you know, looking for a bag, and that's great. Like, they paid top money for a head coach as well, and and for assistance. So why not pay for players? Are we just riding with Texas ATM now? I think it's a great line. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, like, th- thank you. This is why the Cover 3 podcast, uh, we really appreciate y'all jumping in because y- you really do contribute to the, the show. And now I'm going to be, it's going to be so ingrained in my brain that I'm going to be on the radio all across the country just calling them Texas ATM. <laughs> just, just spitting it into the college football universe, changing be, the language. Be careful, bud. Billy Liucci's going to find your connection to Texas somehow if you keep this up. <laughs> Billy's cool, man. I know. Okay. Uh, this next question comes from Sean. Love the show, guys. Two-part question. Why doesn't the Georgia offense and Stetson Bennett receive more credit for the past season when the stats show they were really effective? The offense ranked second in SP+, was a top 10 scoring offense, and top five in yards per pass, yards per play, and points per play. Similarly, Bennett was fourth or better in passing efficiency, yards per completion, yards per attempt, and QBR. Finally, why isn't there more buzz for the UGA offense going into 2022, given how much of it returns? Because it's not cool. That's why. It's not the cool new RPO, super fun, four wide all the time offense. That is the only reason why. And also the fact that they had a generational defense which is going to soak up most of the attention but no that's it's really all it is because they don't have an nfl top first round pick at qb and they're not doing all the cool new stuff they're just kind of overpowering teams and that's that is what it's all going to come down to i would say um all of what tom said right it's not very exciting to watch it was effective however i would point out that uh it was actually somewhere between terrible to below average against the better defenses they faced most of the time, right? Oh, yeah, that's your... They, they they did not score an officer touchdown against Clemson, right? The first time they played Alabama, they scored a bunch of garbage time points, you know, or, well, kind of garbage time-ish points, but Alabama you know, defensively really shut them down and make, made Stetson Bennett look like a walk-on. In between there, they played UAB, yeah, South Carolina, Vandy, Arkansas, at Auburn, they actually struggled offensively against Auburn for quite a while until the until the defense bailed them out. You know, Kentucky, nothing special defensively. Florida, by, at that point, it kind of kind of quit. But like even then, Bennett tried to give them the game a couple times. You know, and then Anthony Richardson should give it right back times two. Missouri, terrible defensively. Tennessee, they really didn't score very much until until late 
right? I mean, like that was kind of a close-ish game that, that Tennessee had given them a little bit of problems. Charleston Southern, Georgia Tech, terrible. Got to give them full credit. They did go out there and beat the heck out of Michigan. They put 34 on a good Michigan defense. Can, you know? Can I go soccer analogy here? Yeah. All right. Let's look at the Champions League final last week. Everybody thinks Jurgen Klopp is a genius. Everybody thinks Pep Guardiola is a genius. They're tactical geniuses. They're just so smart strategically with the way that they play and their possession-based style and their pressing and all this blah, blah, blah. And Klopp's going up against Carlo Ancelotti in Real Madrid. And people are talking about Carlo Ancelotti as if he's just like a really good locker room manager. Like, hey, he's really good at managing the team. He just rolls the ball out there and lets them play. And the reason they do that is because Carlo Ancelotti doesn't play any of the new kind of formations or styles that are currently in vogue. He came out in a 4-3-3, which is really more of a 4-4-2 diamond, which soccer fans will understand. If you don't, it doesn't matter. All you need to know is it's more of an old-school kind of formation that you don't see a whole lot of, but it's a kind of formation Ancelotti has used a lot in his career as a manager. It's all sorts of different places where he's won all sorts of different things. Only manager in history to win the, le- the each of the major five leagues in Europe. And then it was the perfect formation to completely shut down Liverpool, one of the most dominant attacks in the world. In fact, might have been, besides Manchester City, the most dominant team in the world all season long. He shut them down. They barely got it. They barely registered an attack. You know, they, they, were, they were stopped pretty much. Like, they had some shots. They could have scored. But overall, it was an effective strategy to slow Liverpool down and take advantage of them and win. Does Carlo Ancelotti get credit for being smart and tactical and knowing how to beat other teams using st- strategy? No, because he doesn't play the cool style. And that's why George's offense gets looked gets overlooked because they don't play the cool new style. Bud had a stat last season where the tough throws for Stetson Bennett came when they had the lead. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, like, like, like the other answer to this is Stetson Bennett. Right? Like the eye test doesn't really match up with some of the numbers. And there was some serious stat padding there against the bad teams, which granted a lot of guys do too. But I do think his, to steal Bill Connolly's term here, covariance was probably greater than most of your recent national championship quarterbacks. He was much worse against the good defenses than he was against the, against the bad ones. And you look at the guy, like he's not getting drafted. He looks and sometimes plays like a walk-on that has crazy talent around him. I expect he'll have a great year this year. I think Georgia's offensive line is going to be absolutely dominant. They'll blow almost everybody they play off the ball. He's got a ton of talent at receiver around him. They have three tight ends now that are, I mean, assuming Eric Gilbert you know, Which stays is perfect on track. for him. Yeah. Because that's like, where his throwing range is. Exactly. And yet, if you get into a playoff or national championship game against Ohio State or Bama, I will again ask the question, if they have to score 40, can they? Because when Bama was healthier in the SEC title game, they could not do it. Bennett played YOLO ball and did not play within inside himself. And when he tries to play up to the level he's at are good QBs, he can't do it. He doesn't have that talent. So I think that's probably why. Internally, we all know they're really effective. But in the back of your mind, there is a question like, why was this guy a walk-on? Like, does he actually have the talent to play to that level? Like, If, the if they play Ohio State's defense last year, they put up 40, yes. Well, the, the question was yeah, also, like, why isn't he getting more love? You know, not do we think they're good? Not do we think that they're going to be effective? And to the last part of the question for 2022, it sounds like our expectations are that Georgia's offense will continue to be efficient. Right? Right. Also, who is the last national title team you can think of 
where of the starting 22, the quarterback was not among like the top 15 players. Yeah. Jake Coker. Yeah. Yeah. I think it makes sense. That's a good call. It's been six, seven years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's why Derrick Henry carried the ball 53 times a game for the last six (laughs) games. (laughs) I'm done. Not giving the ball in Jake Coker's hands anymore. Um, it's like when your kid's acting up and you're like, screw it. I don't really want to walk this, you know, three quarter mile back to the car, like carrying you, but I'm, I'm, I'm about done with this. It, yeah, yeah. 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 Sometimes you got to bring it home. Shout out to the right time. Uh, all right. Last question here. Uh, question comes from broom. Let's see. Hey guys. <laughs> hey guys. Love the pod makes a long drive to work worth it. So here's my question. If Bo Nix stays healthy, does Auburn finish the season at nine and three, possibly ten with a bowl win? The offseason woes were definitely a product of Harson losing the last five games of the season. How much blame can be put on him for having to finish his first year in the SEC with a backup quarterback in the hardest conference and hardest division in football? And what are they saying about him coming into this year if they had finished the year with nine or ten wins? Anyways, keep the great content coming and War Eagle. Should we review which games no. he actually played? Just well, for, I mean, uh, everybody know. Yeah, like they were what? They were one, two, they were six and three. Or six and what were they? One, two, three, four, six. Yeah, they'd lost four games before he got hurt. So how are they yeah. gonna go nine and three? Right. <laughs> but no, like the the, the three games he missed were at South Carolina. Maybe Auburn wins that game if Bo Nix is healthy, but they aren't. I, they almost beat Alabama without him. And to me, if they could almost, I don't, does Bama play the same way if if Nick if, if they're facing Knicks? Yeah, I I don't know. I I, I get where the question comes from, and maybe my own personal feelings about Bo Nix are really getting in the way of affecting this. But again, they were six and four with them. So no, I don't think they're they're winning all three of those games if he's healthy. Same. I definitely don't think they're 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 winning those last three games if he's healthy. I mean, not not all of them. Maybe they're a win better. I think they can beat Houston. But they had everybody else opt out. Like, do you think yeah, nobody? That, like, like, do you think game. the kids are no longer going to hate Brian Harson just because just because uh, what's his name's around Bo Nix? Yeah, yeah like. I, I, I think I'm I'm comfortable giving them South Carolina, but even that was on the road, so I'm not super comfortable giving them South Carolina. And does beating South Carolina beating South Carolina doesn't change how we view uh, Brian Harson and Auburn, right? Because the no. the Iron Bowl flipping the other way does set up for a very different offseason. I think the way that Auburn boosters feel about Auburn is mostly related to the exodus of players combined with the lack of success in recruiting. Like and Derek Texas, Mason Texas leaving. A&M, you know, Texas A&M doing what they did in recruiting pushes Auburn down one more rung. Mm. So Brian Harson, even with the healthy Bo Nix, only wins about one or two more games and probably still has to deal with an entire booster community that is trying to find anything and everything that could lead to a four-cause fire. Yeah, I think pie in the sky, absolute ideal scenario is if Knicks is healthy, they finish eight and five. 
which yeah, yeah it doesn't it's not going to be good enough. Um, do Bo Nix at Oregon is he the starting quarterback for Week One? I think so. I think so. Yeah. And then Ty Thompson, just sort of you know wait and see if Nix is going to be healthy through the whole season. Maybe you got to call his number, but um, you know you just keep the guy who Kirby Smart called one of the best athletes he's ever seen uh, in there as as your QB one. <laughs> I, look, I think Oregon's offensive line is going to be pretty good. I don't know if the listeners have have gotten to that uh, that summer school series we did yet, but I think he's going to have a lot of time. It's not like that division has a whole lot of guys. Or there's really no divisions anymore, but the schedules are still kind of division ish, even though they, they scrapped the divisions. They didn't redo all the schedules. Um, you know, uh, you don't face a whole lot of good defensive linemen up there for the most part. One of Washington's best pass rushers, you remember he blew his Achilles. Um, I think he'll have a good amount of time back there, even if Georgia tears him up up front, which. But I could also counter is giving Bo Nix time the best idea. That's a good point. Like, is he going to use all of it just to think more? He wouldn't know what to do with it. More happen. Yeah, no, I feel so bad. I feel like I'm so mean to that kid. I, I do think, um, I won't be surprised if Phoenix has a good season with Oregon. I think getting out of the SEC, like you were saying, with the the, the difference in defenses he's going to face, wouldn't be surprised if Phoenix has the best year of his career and you know kind of maybe gets a shot in the NFL because of it. But I also wouldn't be surprised if he goes to Oregon. He has moments, both good and bad, is inconsistent and it you know costs him a few games. And he he might win a couple games on his own. He might lose a couple games on his own. That's just kind of the Phoenix experience that I've that I've lived and seen. 16 touchdowns to six interceptions, but a 57% passer at 6.7 yards per attempt in a freshman season where we were all like, wow, Bo Nix. And I kind of feel like he's been about the same player Mm -hmm. ever since then. Yeah. Like, I mean, remember I picked not a ton of development. I picked Washington to arrive a year early. That plays a role in my, in that call. I liked, I liked the, uh, yeah. And a reminder, if you want to get in on that, the, uh, the teams that we think will arrive early was on the back half of our SEC scheduling discussion in Wednesday's episode. Uh, go ahead and check that out. If you want to get in on a future mailbag episode, you can do so by leaving us a five-star review. And in that review, go ahead and put your mailbag question. You can follow him on Twitter at Tom Fernelli. You can follow him at Bud Elliott 3 You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.